Listening to the Alberta Advantage on CJSW 90.9 FM on Treaty 7 territory in Calgary. My name is Kate Jacobson and I produce the Alberta Advantage, where we offer analysis on Albertan and Canadian history and politics from a perspective that doesn't always get a lot of airtime. Welcome to another mini episode of the Alberta Advantage. My name is Kate Jacobson and I will be hosting today's episode. I am joined in studio by fellow Team Advantage member Karen. Hello. And by James Davidge and Nick Johnson. Hello. Hello there. They are two of the creators of First Legion of Utopia, which is a graphic novel described as an epic tale of killers, queers, and the birth of Canadian socialism. So clearly this is prime Alberta Advantage uh, content. This is absolutely catnip for us. And we're so glad both of you can be here to get into some of the details of this project with us. So first, the basics. First Legion of Utopia was released in April 2019 by Renegade Arts Entertainment. And the book's creative team also includes Bob Proder, Ryan Ferrier, and Kyle Burns. This is a story that is set in Calgary in the early 1930s. The book's cover shows the main characters, Brian Ma and Holly Burnside, holding a banner for the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the left-wing political organization that is the predecessor to the NDP. Okay, so James, you're a writer and teacher who lives in Calgary. You've also written a 2010 graphic novel featuring Holly Burnside and another novel about cowboy John Ware. What fascinates you about Southern Alberta history, especially the more progressive or forgotten aspects that your work brings to light? Well, I, I mean, all sorts fascinates me about it. And I, I think when I find something, uh, there's a little light bulb that goes off. So when I learned about John Ware, I was teaching at the junior high named after him. And I just went, what? Wait, there was a black cowboy who rose to prominence? And I know that excited my publisher at the time uh, when I was uh, meeting and discussing with him uh, the project. Right at that same time, there was... Um, White, uh, white power rallies in downtown Calgary, and this was in like 2009, which seemed foreign, but it was making national news. So he was excited to show a story that, uh, that countered that. With uh, 13 Minutes, where we went into the Alberta Eugenics Board, the uh, controversy there was of the fact that Nellie McClung, who was part of the Famous Five, was a huge advocate for eugenics. And actually something I learned with the recent project, so was Tommy Douglas. He got his master's degree in it. So um, for me, that seemed uh, eugenics, which is about uh, sterilization of people to uh, create a better society, uh, was, I guess, uh, meaty enough. It had it, had, it interested me, and I thought I could um, explore it in a way that was fair to, to, um, to multiple perspectives on that issue. Uh, with this recent project, First Legion of Utopia, uh, I learned about the meeting uh, almost the day after after uh, the um, NDP won in 2015 in Alberta, and Calgary was still sort of reeling in shock, and and um, and I read a column written by uh, Chris Nelson in the Herald, and he just went. Uh, he, he kind of recounted the story of the meeting at the number one legion, uh, which I just thought very interesting that they met in the number one legion. For an, I thought that was interesting for for multiple reasons, and I just still remember in the column he went, "Just relax, 
we live in Calgary, the birthplace of Canadian socialism. And I just really <laughs> wanted to uh, acknowledge that and explore that. And I learned so much researching this project uh, that I, you know, am excited. And, um, and I guess more than anything, I think it's important that we uh, that we do explore these stories. I think Calgary, Alberta tends to be a little one-sided. And I think it's important that we disrupt that. And I think um, that's part of why I like to uh, tell stories is to shake up people's mindsets a bit. I have to admit I was delighted to see the number one legion in the text because I mostly know it as a place I go to once a month to watch indie wrestling. So for me, seeing it as the birthplace of Canadian socialism is just so delightful because I know it as a place where like Sweet Daddy Soul fights the Vikings uh, under a <laughs> portrait of the queen. Hmm. So definitely two very disparate experiences, but definitely part of a larger oh, whole. Both enjoyable, Calgary. of course. Both very enjoyable. <laughs> So, Nick, you're an ACAD graduate, which mm -hmm. is our um, local art and design school here in Calgary, and you're credited with the background art and the colors for this book. And to us, kind of the locations and the milieu that the characters inhabit in this text reads as very Calgary, and not just in terms of like the still standing places like the number one Canadian Legion or the Plaza Theater, although, of course, it's very helpful to see those. So could you tell us a little bit about how you created this lived in, very Calgary world for the characters in First Legion of Utopia. Yeah, well, I would definitely say that photo reference is super key in creating a historical background that is not only um, recognizable to the point where people can go, oh, that's that building, oh, that's that building, but also giving it a level of detail that really puts it in the time period so that it has that level of authenticity. Um, I'll also say that when you are meant to create art on a deadline, you can't necessarily be a slave to 100% accuracy of history, especially when you're looking at photos and you're trying to get that train station just right, but you never have the angle that you really need for the story. Uh, and then you're in a unique position sometimes where when you're a background artist and the figures have already been drawn, you don't necessarily get to choose the angle that you're working with. So right. uh, I had to be a little bit creative um, with regards to the background. And I found that my priority, it started to become less about uh, perspective and realism and more about immersing the reader in a time that is not our own. So taking them from a, a safe distance, like... I don't really um, like the idea of creating historical comics that put us outside of it and, and make it seem like this sterile thing that's way in the past. I want mm -hmm. to immerse the reader in it. Mm -hmm. So my key's uh, focuses became uh, layering and using a strong foreground, midground, background to add depth and, uh, you know, throw that ruler away and give the character, uh, give the building some characters, add some curve mm -hmm. in there, get those sandstone mm -hmm. buildings tilting around your characters so they kind of feel like characters themselves. Mm -hmm. um, that sort of became my focus there. So a little bit of everything to create this immersive world that really helped history come to life. Canadians probably have a pretty homogenous idea of life in the Great Depression and the prairies in the early 20th century. Uh, the book is very intentional in showing different, different perspectives in addition to kind of the workers and farmers that you expect to be the base of the CCF. So... The character Brian Ma was a queer Chinese man, and Holly Burnside is a woman who is involved in political life. And there's additional LGBTQ and First Nation spaces and characters woven into the narrative. I'd say that the result is inclusive and respectful, but it's also historically accurate or factual, um, since these things and people happened and existed. Um, how would you say that you accomplished this through the writing and the art? Part, to, to make it inclusive, we uh, genuinely reached out to certain groups. Um, we 
I, I knew I wanted to involve uh, having a uh, Chinese Canadian character for a number of reasons. Uh, one of my uh, uh, dear friends, uh, Derek Ma, who's a uh, got involved with politics with me a number of years ago, and um, and he always influenced, I guess, my my local perspective of politics uh, for a number of reasons, and just also of Chinese uh, Canadian history. So I wanted to bring that in. If you look at any old. Uh, CCF picture. There's no evidence that a Chinese Canadian volunteered for them at all. Um, mm -hmm. So he's definitely a work of fiction, but that was very intentional. There's there's certainly nothing. One thing I've learned about kind of, especially uh, underground history is is just because there's no evidence of something doesn't mean you can't imagine that it's true, and it doesn't make it not worth imagining. And um, and bringing um, a character like that in was very uh, it was very fun because it because it forced Holly to uh, to bring this character in and to sort of say it's okay let's 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 buck the system. Um, which I think there's always those trailblazers. So we kind of created one with Brian. And um, and we did, uh, then I very consciously, because he was gay, uh, reached out to the Calgary Queer History Project. Um, another political friend of mine connected me to that project. I found out that another person I knew more through the theater world uh, was uh, involved with the Queer History Project. So she did some uh, consulting on the project, really helped me understand how how, how there would be issues uh, challenging uh Brian in, in that time, and, and, and that helped, I guess, uh, bring in some of the central plot development points. But yeah, that was um, that was important, and 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 so that consulting happened, and then also we were fortunate to talk with Daryl Kootenay of the uh, Nakota Youth Council to help us with the third part, where I wanted to bring in First Nations culture, uh, particularly the Nakota. Uh, that made sense for a number of reasons, um, just because I I wanted us to get out to the um, the highway camps and check those out, and so it made sense to head towards Banff and and to be in the Nakota land, and and it was interesting how really where we found the connect how a way to connect these cultures was what I think is one of the strongest components of uh, the CCF coming into being which is that uh, they really helped bring about uh, universal health care in Canada and so to connect these cultures through uh, healing uh, through First Nations healing through um, we end up in a Chinatown apothecary it all sort of made sense that it's it was all Healing seemed to be a, a subtle theme of how we connected these cultures at the time and uh, so yeah Just research and then and but it was very valuable to actually connect with people with more with more connection to these cultures I find it uh, really appealing to think about the people outside the border of the photograph that we see in textbooks so um, We look at textbooks throughout uh, our education growing up and everything and going way back You always see the people in the photograph that the people taking the picture thought were important at that time so I kind kind of imagine that everybody, all the characters that we have put into First Legion were really just the people that were there if you just tilted the camera a few degrees to the left or a few degrees mm -hmm. to the right. Mm -hmm. uh, because we know people were there and it wasn't just the people that we see in the photographs. So to be able to follow that journey and see that perspective through history is always a fascinating one and a fun one. Yeah, I really enjoyed that you both displayed that obviously the only people who were present in Calgary and organizing around the same issues of the CCF were of course not only white workers and farmers, primarily male, but also that the CCF was in some ways a very exclusionary space. Like Brian says in the text that he'd never seen a Chinese person at CCF events or at political events in general. Uh, it's made pretty clear that like the CCF is not really interested in kind of stopping 
settler colonialism as like a destructive political force on the prairies. So I felt that it was both respectful and interesting to a modern reader, but also not kind of doing this ahistorical thing where we maybe ascribe politics that I would have loved the CCF to have, but that unfortunately they didn't and were major blind spots for them. So I really enjoyed that. Um, and one of the other things I really enjoyed about the text is that Brian and Holly are the main characters here, but they also encounter a lot of people who are very famous and probably quite familiar to many listeners of the podcast and to students of Alberta history. So who are some of the famous faces that make their way into First Legion of Utopia? And why did you feel that it was important to include them in the text? Well, for me, the rock star of the book is J.S. Woodsworth, and mm-hmm. um, and I didn't know anything about him before I started to research this project. Um, but he, um, it seems like Tommy Douglas gets a lot of the the credit for a lot of this. But without Woodsworth, there'd be none of this, I don't think. And he, uh, it's interesting with the Winnipeg general strike uh, being acknowledged a lot this year. He um, he was arrested then. He was he was the editor of of one of the one of the uh, labor newspapers, um, and he came out of that strike uh, an ardent pacifist. One of my favorite stories of Woodsworth is uh, he was he was he was an MP for for decades and decades before the CCF and after, and uh, William Leon Mackenzie King, who was a longtime Liberal Prime Minister, I think he had two different eras as Prime Minister. He was around so long, and he really respected Woodsworth, and he um, used to call him the conscience of Canada, most particularly because he was the one uh, MP in 19, 1939 to. Uh, to, to to not vote that we go to war. And this was a big deal, period, because in Canada, that was, I think, one of the first acts of sovereignty. Canada, before that, they just went to war when Britain went to war. And this was one of the first times that we as a governing nation voted to go to war. And, um, and Woodsworth just, all the other uh, CCF MPs voted to go to war. It's just in the way that we often behave during those times. Um, but he, uh, he didn't. And so I think there was just, uh, his character just, is so impressive to me uh, that um, he's a huge star. Um, we do mention Tommy Douglas, and we made sure we, we, we had an image of him. And, and he, at the time, in 1931 or 32, was active. He was certainly starting to speak. Uh, he, he won as a CCF MP in 35 before he went back to provincial politics. So I felt it worth mentioning him. Um, and interestingly enough, at one point, I was going to have him be a character until I found out I was pretty certain he wasn't at the 32 meeting. So I felt like I, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to, uh, I guess, fib on that. And um, I was, I was going to include Agnes McPhail one t- at one point, who was an Ontario, um, or the first female member of parliament from Ontario. But then I, and she was, she moved over to the CCF once it became a party. But then I found out she wasn't there for sure. She couldn't make it. So then I grabbed at Irene Parlby, who was uh, part of the Famous Five, was um, an Alberta Farmer Association minister, one of the, the first female minister in Alberta legislature. Uh, other famous characters include Jacob Two Young Men, who was uh, from the Nakoda. He um, he was very active in the um, in the Indian days and hosting what was called the Indian Village at the Stampede at the time. Um, and also he was involved with the founding of Camp Chief Hector. Uh, and I wanted to bring those elements into the story. And then the whole Camp Chief Hector element was important to me uh, when we went to the final uh, healing scene of, of the last um, of the last moment. And um, we have Tim Buck, leader of the Communist Party at the time. Um, and he really served to uh, kind of contrast how, uh, I guess, different perspectives uh, from, from the left that were happening from the far left that were happening in Canada at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, uh, how I started to understand it was that 
the uh, the communists, Timbuk and the communists, were really wanting all-out uh, revolution. You know, just overthrow the state and uh, and start anew. And uh, Woodsworth uh, wasn't interested in that perspective after after the uh, violence of the uh, Winnipeg General Strike. Uh, and so he and others like Clarence Fines, who we also include, who was active in Saskatchewan after this, they were really seeking reformation in that idea that we could become a more moral country uh, just through our democratic process and being more involved with it. Yeah, so the book lists four creators on the cover and a fifth inside. So it seems like a lot of indie comics. It's kind of one person, a solo project. But in this case, uh, there's a a lot of people involved, uh, which is very much in keeping with the spirit of the book. Um, So how did you um, go about the creative process with so many people on board? And do you have any tips to share for collaborating? Oh, yeah. Well, I could uh, definitely speak about the art side because, I mean, generally in my practice, I like to be jack of all trades. So I like... Like, lay it out, pencil it, ink it, color it. Maybe I'm control freak. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this was a really interesting opportunity because when James originally pitched it, he wasn't sure who was going to be available when, but he knew if he got the grant money to do it, um, he was definitely going to push the project forward. So um, because James wanted to stick with Bob Proter, who had worked with him on two previous projects, um, but we weren't sure what his schedule would be like at that time, uh, I agreed that even if Bob could get on board to to loan his very specific uh, sense of storytelling and uh, figures uh, to the book. I could help out in any other way artistically that would kind of supplement that or help finish it or get the book done. Um, So when everything eventually worked out, uh, we decided that Bob was going to uh, pencil the figures, he was going to ink the figures, and then like physically mail me these comic book pages. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, which is a pretty old school way of doing it and just trusting Canada Mm. Post to to do their job and do it well and by god they did <laughs> so every every month or two i would get this stack of pages in the mail which was super exciting oh, for I me bet. yeah and i could pop it open and look at these super cool figures and then uh panic and dread would fill me as i realized they were just dead center of a blank page <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> and then my job was to to kind of work a background around them based on photo reference and such um and then, yeah, when James eventually, when he did pitch the book to me, I didn't have a day job. So I was like, I'll do everything. I'll do all of it. Uh, but then when we actually got the grant money, I had a full-time job. So I was like, uh, I need help. <laughs> uh, so I had a fellow named Kyle Burles help me out with the flatting. He's a super reliable dude, very technically conscious, very swift, and easy to work with. So he did all the flats where you basically drop random colors onto the inks so that when it takes time, uh, the colorist has to do the job, they don't have to fill in all the gaps so i could really just focus on a color palette which is very simple um also partly because of time um but yeah that's why so many people end up uh touching the book artistically a lot of it is time but then to be able to work with such talented people and to see everybody do their job so well uh is always encouraging and then ryan farrier who did the lettering like when you look at a comic page and it's just art and it's color, it's like, wow, this is like, looks like a nice finished thing, but it doesn't feel like a comic until those letters are put on there and those word balloons. And there's just something about a really good letter. When they put it down, it just feels real. It feels like a comic. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, seeing those finished pages all lettered up and everything was quite a thrill. Your question as far as, uh, you know, tips for collaborating, um, I think uh, communication and then just uh, compromise also often. I know for me... Uh, Something I often when I when I talk to people about writing comics and you're and you're giving someone a script, 
often someone will draw something that you're not expecting. And, um, and you have to make a decision. And so the advice I often give myself and other people is when you see that image, if it wasn't what you expected, I always go for a walk. I don't, I don't go to the email. I don't uh, pick up the phone. I go for a walk and I clear my head and then I relook at that image. And then if it's, and often, uh, often the artist has made a better call. Uh, maybe not even knowing they've made a better call, uh, but they've made a better call. Artists have a better sense of, of visual storytelling, better than I. So sometimes, and Bob does this all the time, more than most artists, um, <laughs> <laughs> makes, makes judgments, um, but it usually works out. And uh, so unless it's, um, there was a situation once actually where Bob drew um, the totally wrong character for about a full page and we had to have him redraw that character. But, uh, but, but if it, Often if it's got to do with placement or layout or adding something or, or keeping something out, um, often I really do uh, respect and appreciate the artist's uh, decision to go in that direction. So, James, you said earlier in this interview that you first learned about uh, the CCF forming in Calgary from a newspaper column that was after yeah. the provincial election in 2015. And this was kind of the spark of the project for you. And yeah. I'm curious that, like, as you continued your research on the CCF's formation, how did you start thinking differently about contemporary politics, like particularly in Alberta and on the prairies? Um, I was already, before I took on the project, I was definitely thinking differently. I was involved with a lot of strategic voting groups. Uh, I was uh, president of One Vote Matters. Um, so for me, what it, what it drove me to do was think differently by reconsidering the NDP and, and getting involved with, with, uh, with, with their party, learning about the CCF, it, what I see, what, I mean, the big thing I, I get out of it is I am so impressed with how they overcame the urban rural divide. Mm -hmm. They really, a, a, a key strength to the, and, and, it, and it was actually really a, a, uh, not a long time. Uh, part of their strength, but their initial strength was how they brought the farmers in. Absolutely. And um, and so I still don't fully understand how they did it. One of the other consultants on the project was Alvin Finkel of Change Alberta, uh, who is a longtime social, socialist history academic. And um, so uh, Alvin was kind enough to consult on the project. And he, you know, he really helped me understand that it wasn't easy and, and he's not sure how they did it either. How, how has this research changed things? I, I mean, I guess time will tell. <laughs> <laughs> I volunteered for the NDP uh, <laughs> in the last election, I think uh, I think it's going to be an interesting question to see how the NDP evolve. And um, and I was actually just listening to one of your podcasts um, where I appreciated what you were saying about how for them to be successful moving forward, they're going to have to be willing to bring people in without an "I told you so" kind of uh, approach. And 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 it's about uh, we need to start to figure out more and more how to connect to voters. And and I think for me, uh, this is just an ongoing journey that I'm on and I think uh, I think uh, the country's on and whatnot is how do we get out of just thinking about how parties can, can work together or how parties can represent our views. How can we connect voters more strongly to government action? Um, I think is a deep question. Um, you know, and this, yeah, I think this project helped me understand a lot about just how much effort went in back then. I mean, none of this was ever easy. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, the fact that we have these, uh, these parties that like, like the CCF, which never formed national government, you know, yet we can attribute a lot of things that we identify as Canadian healthcare pensions to their, to the, to the, to the stances they took to the, to the, to the, to the effort they put into things without ever really, well, I'm sure they wanted power, but without, yeah, it's just interesting that, that, uh, 
I think we need to, you know, be be ready to work to bring people together. Yeah, I think there's a super mm-hmm. interesting point about how so often now the focus of social democracy and social democratic movements is we have to form government and we'll do anything to get there. We'll give up on any of our key beliefs. We'll triangulate X, Y, and Z ways. But really thinking about how can we get and wield power outside of forming the government is, I think, a really, really powerful question for social democratic movements. And whether that means uh, mass movements like large strikes in the public sector, whether that means public pressure, um, protracted campaigns, uh, even like direct action, like what we're seeing with the pipeline in British Columbia, really thinking about ways we can wield power uh, outside of or alongside gaining electoral power is a very powerful question, I think. Uh, We just wanted to know about any groups outside of kind of the strict political party system um, that you found inspiring in the last few years or were examples of uh, solidarity, which is a value that we discuss often on Alberta Advantage. Um, We found a few examples in the text that uh, you had mentioned earlier, the kind of uh, common ground between the Nakoda and the Chinese healing practices. Uh, So that's a great example. And also uh, there's groups that um, within the book, they just admit that they don't have a voice or they are left out, like women's groups just uh, did, didn't necessarily make the cut in kind of the first go-round uh, for, you know, the founding documents and meetings. So um, we're just wondering if there's any, yeah, like movements or actions that you've seen that you say, okay, they're they're on the right track or that's something to to be inspired by or you think could go further? For me personally, uh, the group I'm, I'm, I'm uh, I've become more involved with is I'm a public school teacher and I'm now on the uh, ATA's political action committee for local 38. So, uh, and I started being my ATA uh, rep about three years ago, you know, because the, because the job, because the teacher that did it for years retired. And so I always admired what he did. So I decided to, to fill that void and, you know, being, I'd been a public school teacher for 15 years or, or, or maybe about 12 years at that point and really took for granted all the mechanisms in place with such a massive organization. And so uh, I, you know, now I go once a month and, you know, talking about collaboration, I sit in a room with 250 people uh, once a month where every single person is representing anywhere from 25 to 40 people. So and we're ultimately representing 8,000 people in the city. When I observe the executive of the ATA, I observe people who couldn't be more democratic. They truly do, they'll stay till midnight to give mm-hmm. you a voice, and and they truly do, and <laughs> and so so uh, for me, I um I I'm I'm excited by by getting to know that organization more, and um and would encourage anyone who's who's uh, benefiting from a union to to be involved with their union. People who say unions are undemocratic have clearly never been to a union meeting. Yeah, they're the longest, most painfully democratic things you can possibly imagine. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and you can walk away from it going, I can't, don't think I can do it again. But then you recharge. <laughs> and you show up a month later and, mm-hmm. and yep. do the work. And and, it, and it's really impressive. So what is next for the both of you in terms of projects that our listeners can anticipate? Um, I've been talking with a publisher about creating a comic 
that uh, I'm already like in the thick of researching. So I've spent the last uh, two months uh, with a really great consultant and uh, doing tons of research, uh, basically about uh, it focuses on uh, Métis family who are uh, forced to go to the Klondike Gold Rush uh, to assist their father, who's uh, caught up in Dawson City. Um, so there's a lot of different areas to research, which is really exciting and thrilling and also a little bit scary scary because it's a whole new world we are i am slowly uh getting the plan together for a third holly burnside graphic novel uh called the blue quills school rebellion and this will be about um in 1972 uh, th when they were phasing out residential schools they in 19 there was a high school in saint paul alberta that they were going to phase out um but the families occupied it. They staged a protest and they occupied the school. And so so instead of closing this residential school, they handed it over to the First Nations community there. And it is still it's it became the first autonomously run First Nations school. I thought once again when I learned about that story, I'm like, that's gotta be a story. And so I'm excited because a friend of mine, uh Cheyenne Martin, who is um who's an old friend of mine. Uh, he's the uh, he's the son of Tantu Cardinal, and um, and he's a creative person and also an, an economist, but uh, lives in Toronto. And he's gonna help me with the research. Both he and his mom have been, are from that era, area originally, and they are, were already independently doing some research there. And so, um, so, so he's gonna help me with some research there, and uh, then we're gonna move that project forward. But something I've learned from having done numerous history uh storytelling projects is i don't this time around i want to do a lot more research before i do the writing because once you start to write a story it starts to build a shape and then your research is either um helping add to that shape or it's contradicting that shape and so i've just learned that it's just worth doing as much research as possible before i really think too much more than I already am uncontrollably about where that story is going. Thank you so much to both of our guests for joining us here on the Alberta Advantage. It was an absolute privilege to have you on. Yes, thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you very, very much. We love your show. Oh, we're happy to hear that. So yeah, First Legion of Utopia, available in bookstores across the prairies. James can be found on Twitter at, at James Davidge, and Nick can also be found online at nickj.ca if you're interested in learning a little bit more about their work. Thank you so much for tuning into the Alberta Advantage, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Makes no difference where I go. You're the best hometown I know. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can hear a longer version of this episode and many more on albertaadvantagepod.com. So long, Calgary. Makes no difference where I go. You're the best hometown I know.